Let's take our Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22, I'll be brief this evening. I, I set goals for myself twice a Sunday, 52 Sundays a year. I fail about 49 times out of that year. I mean weeks, which means 98 times. I'll be brief this evening, but I want to review a couple things and see if we can't cover a couple of points that will leave, leave us set up next Sunday evening to look at the objections that I want to get to and be very careful with as we deal with, deal with them. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 28 is the text that we used last <coughs> Sunday. I want to state it again. Exodus 22:28, Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. This is one of God's commandments for us to guard our tongues relative to what we might say about someone in authority. This covers children speaking about their parents. This covers wives about their husbands, members about their pastors or Israelites about Moses. This covers citizens about their kings, and it covers employees about masters. For the most part, though, it's civil rulers that we need to take great caution to our words that we do not revile nor curse the rulers of the people. And God here sets them up by calling them God with a little g because they are in his stead by his appointment and by his blessing and defense with his representatives and we had better guard our mouths relative to them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, for the sake of your ordinance, that the powers that be are ordained of thee, bless us in the few minutes that we have this evening that we might be encouraged and confirmed and provoked and reminded of our responsibility, our duty, and if possible, Lord, yea, even a privilege to serve properly under proper authority. Bless us to that end. Forgive us where in the past we see things that we have done that were wrong in the light of your word. That's what your word is for. Whatsoever doth make manifest is light. And your word makes manifest all our weaknesses, our sins, and our failures. But, O oh Lord, bless us to look into this perfect law of liberty and not go away from this place forgetting what manner of men we are, but convicted about what manner of men we have been and convicted to be better men and to be converted by the teaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen. Last Sunday evening, my goal was to exalt authority. And I wanted to do that from a number of angles, and those angles I'll just review very briefly, and we'll look at a couple of references I had to skip last Sunday night. But this is the first one we began with, where we have a short, concise commandment, Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. I'm going to comment on this again in a few minutes. But we have something in our nation that we're often thankful for because it has given the liberty of what we're doing right now. And yet I believe our thanksgiving ought to be a little more governed than it is, and that we ought to see a little more clearly than simply offering up a general thanksgiving for this thing that we call freedom of speech. Freedom of speech, as it is now practiced in our nation, is the imagination of a brute beast. Because it allows anything to be said by anyone about anyone. I do not like looking into our newspapers and seeing those big cartoons that are drawn on the editorial page where they take our presidents and caricature their characters, faces, bodies, and works. I don't like that. It's not, it's not scriptural. Right. Those men ought to be esteemed more than that. Right. They take ministers and do that. They take our governor and do that. And this freedom of speech is something that men look to and say, well, if it wasn't for the freedom of speech, we wouldn't be able to preach the gospel. Well, that's like thanking God for Judah's incest because we got Jesus Christ by it. Just because we got Jesus Christ through one of 
the twins that Tamar bore Judah doesn't mean that what Judah did was a good thing in itself. It right. means that God overruled it and used it for the benefit of the preaching of the gospel. Because freedom of speech is now practiced in our nation is not pleasing to God. Because it gives way too many liberties. Right. People ought to be governed in what they say. This says, thou shalt not revile the God. So there are some things that you're not free to say. Amen. So there isn't complete freedom of speech. Right. Nor curse the ruler of thy people. But I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that. The, the, the second point we looked at was that God calls his kings his servants. God calls kings and servants. Remember we looked at Jeremiah 27 where God said, I've created everything there is. I've created the beasts of the field and I give it to whomsoever I will. And right now I've given it to Nebuchadnezzar my servant. In the Bible, if you want to look at kings, Nebuchadnezzar is called the servant of God more than any pagan king in the Bible because God used him and God liked Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar was so great. He, he was the closest king this world has seen to being God as far as absolute power was concerned and the glory and splendor and majesty of his kingdom. Because God said, I've made you a king of kings and lord of lords, and that isn't said of anyone else in the Old Testament, but it's said of Nebuchadnezzar because he was. And he called him the head of gold. But he calls him his servant. And that's an exaltation of authority that God would call a king his servant, even a king that worshipped a golden statue. Even a king that did not know God for most of his life. Even a king that would not submit to the warnings of Daniel until God had changed his heart. God called that king his servant because God had given the kingdoms of the earth into his hand to do his will among them. One of those wills was to beat Israel and to take them captive into Babylon. Another another aspect of the will of God was to use ba Babylon to destroy Egypt. The Israelites had tried to make a confederation with Egypt in order for Egypt to protect them from the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And God didn't like that fact. There was even a nation for Israel to look to. And so God used Babylon to crush Egypt. And you can read about all that in the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and other places, and see how God used the great King Nebuchadnezzar, his servant. We looked at those places in Scripture where women are told to reverence their husbands and to call them Lord, as Sarah did of Abraham, even in her own mind, as she thought about her husband. We looked at how children should reverence their fathers. And then we looked at a number of verses, and I had to skip a number, about how disrespectful language about authority is something God's Word condemns over and over again. Now look at Job 34 for a text I didn't get to turn to the last Lord's Day. The book of Job, chapter 34. Chapter 34 will put us in the section where what man is speaking? Elihu. Jeremiah 34. Now Elihu is reasoning with Job. And he says in verse 16, if now thou hast understanding, hear this. Hearken to the voice of my words. If you've got any ability to reason left, listen to what I'm going to say. Shall even he that hateth right govern? And wilt thou condemn him that is most just? This is an appeal to God. This is an appeal to God. Because Job's been condemning God for what he's done. And Elihu is reasoning... Shall even he that hateth right govern? I mean, is God the governor of this universe because he hates right? He's unrighteous? Or wilt thou condemn him that is most just? And God is the most just. But look at the next verse. Is it fit to say to a king, thou art wicked? Now that's a rhetorical question. Is it fit to say to a king, thou art wicked? And to princes, ye are ungodly. What if they're wicked? What if they're wicked? It still isn't your place to go tell them they're wicked. And if princes are ungodly, it's still not your place to go tell them they're ungodly. Those are rhetorical questions. 
that are negative answers expected of them in Elijah's pursuing. You say, but aren't there some men in the Bible who went and told kings that they were wicked or they were ungodly? God's called them. Right. God's called them and specially charged them for their mission. John the Baptist might be able to tell Herod that what he was doing was wrong, but God sent John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And there may have been other prophets like Nathan who stood up and told David what he had done was wrong. But God sent David. He was God's mouthpiece. He wasn't some citizen making some judgment on that king. Now this is a strong statement. And it may, it may war against the way our minds think. But it is not proper for a people under a king to rise up and say, Thou art wicked. And the princes, ye are ungodly. God will raise up men to do that if there are people that truly want a God-fearing, righteous king. And God sometimes will send his prophets to do it. But these questions demand negative answers. No, it isn't right, nor is it fit, to say to a king, thou art wicked. Now, if it's not right to tell a king that he's wicked... If it's not right to tell princes that they're ungodly, Elihu reasons with Job, how much less to him that accepteth not the persons of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. Elihu's argument is this. If it's wrong to tell a king he's wicked, or princes that they're ungodly, why are you lifting up your voice against God Almighty, who is so high he doesn't even consider kings and princes? That's the line of reasoning here. That's a strong warning. That is a strong warning about even when we may disagree with what our president or our Congress or our Supreme Court is doing, let us not rail on them, their persons, nor their offices. If we have the word of God, the word of God shall be preached and will not modify it. However, let's guard very carefully how we say that they are wicked. We do not know all that they're doing. Right. Now, when there's something like abortion, we'll raise our voice against abortion. We will pray for our Supreme Court that that decision might be overturned. But we're not going to say those Supreme Court justices are wicked men. We'll preach against abortion. The argument isn't with them. God takes it up with them. They're higher than we are, and there's one higher than they. We don't think for a minute that God gets about it. Don't think for a minute that God isn't in control. Do you know how we handle that? We preach against abortion, and we vote them out of office. That's the liberty God's given us in this nation. And we pray that God will overrule their evil intentions. That God will overrule anything that they may do. That God, that God will bless them with wisdom and prudence to make wise decisions for us. That's what we ought to do. Is it fit to say to a king, thou art wicked? The answer is no. Just as it is not fit to say it to God. Notice the line of reasoning by a very godly man, Elihu. You know, we looked at several verses last Sunday about Deuteronomy. How about Deuteronomy 27, 16? You don't need to turn there. You know it, I hope, by now. <coughs> thou shalt not set light by the... Uh, any man that setteth light by his father or by his mother <coughs> shall be cursed. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father, by his mother. I got it as a third tribe. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or by his mother. And the people shall say, Amen. Amen. We talked about the word sass last week, didn't we? It's a word that sort of disappeared from our language. Our grandmothers knew it well, didn't they? Didn't they know it well? What is sassing? But setting light by your mother, by your father. You know, I remember my father wouldn't even let us boys, my, that's my brother and I, call policemen cops. My father would not let us call policemen cops because cop to him was a disrespectful term. That was a policeman. Because when I was growing up, at least in the part of the country I was growing up, they weren't called cops, they were called pigs. From about the fourth grade on, back there in the heyday of the 60s, they were called pigs. And cop was halfway there. They were policemen. And I remember my father teaching me that, and I'm thankful to God for that. Uh, every time I've used that word since as an adult, and every time I do it, I have a pang of conscience, and I try to correct it. If my boys have good memories, they know that they've been corrected on that. They're policemen. 
I remember one time, and I've told you about this before, calling my mother the old woman. I called her that one time because I didn't like the taste of dial soap. Because she polite, she kindly, gently, graciously took me from the kitchen table where I had said that and took me into the nearest bathroom and stuck a bar of soap in my mouth. Now that setting light about a mother. And the Bible punishment was for that a whole lot severe, more severe than dial soap. Right. It was cursed. Be he that setteth light by his mother or by his father. I can't exalt authority enough, can I, compared to where God put it. Can we even can we get it there? I called her that one time. I remember as a very irreverent young teenager at a baseball game, in the heat of a baseball game, one of our one of the men on the team, his wife was a scorekeeper, and I, I needed to know something, and I, I yelled at him and I said, Would you ask your old lady? Would you ask your old lady? What this, I can't even remember, so I'm not going to make something up. What, what the score was or something. Now, this guy was about six foot five, and my wife knows. This guy was about six foot five and about 260 pounds, and I was about 120. And a couple innings later, he got me up against the fence there behind the plate while someone else was batting, and we were off the field. And I've never called anyone's wife an old lady like that. Again. <laughs> I, you know, it's humiliating to do this sometimes, but listen, there are lessons to be learned in life, and God puts a great deal of emphasis upon them. Speaking disrespectfully about people. We need to guard against that. And, you know, a man ought not to consider his wife lightly like that. There's warnings about that. I gave you a lot of those examples last Sunday. There's more to look. There's more to look at, but you'll need to do that in the outline, and we'll get them from time to time. Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Let's watch how what we call policemen, our president, our pastor, our parents, our grandparents. You know, my father would never let me call him Pop. Pop. What does Pop mean? I never did. Pop. He was my father. You know, we, we you think, well, you're just being, you're nitpicking, you're nitpicking. Well, cursed be he that setteth light by his father or by his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Yeah. It's something we need to guard and to speak very respectfully and reverentially. The Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter nine, verse twelve, chapter twelve and verse nine assumes that we are to give reverence to our fathers. You don't reverence anyone by calling them pop. Hey pop, hey pop, come here. Hey, Pop, can I have my allowance? This, I hope that there's something inside you that goes off like a trigger on a gun when you hear that. We looked at the tender relationship of parents and children and how it was enforced by death when children did not give proper reverence to their parents. We looked at how masters could beat their servants and those servants could die as long as it was over 24 hours later because God was going to uphold the authority of masters over servants. We saw the precautions that David took when God brought King Saul into his hands. And boy, I remember as a young child trying to help why in the world David just didn't put his spear right through King Saul's chest. When King Saul was laying there on the ground sound asleep and David stood next to him and his nephew says to him, you know, he had quite a set of nephews if you ever looked at the family tree of David. He said, you sons of Zeruiah are too hard for me. But his nephew stood there and he said, Listen, the Lord's delivered him into your hands. It's all over right now. All you got to do is take his life. David said, There's no way I would touch the Lord's anointed. Remember that? Don't ever forget that. I haven't forgot that story. That is a, an impressive lesson of a man after God's own heart. Right. Hadn't God already anointed him king? Couldn't he have sped up the process and taken the throne a little earlier? God had made him king. God had said he had taken the kingdom away from Saul. The people wanted David. Remember, David slain his ten thousand. Saul's only slain his thousands. David preserved his life. And the poor man who came and told David on one occasion that he had taken Saul's life <coughs> felt 
found out if there was life after death very quickly or not, didn't he? Remember that man who came bragging? Yeah. And thought, he would, thought he'd be promoted in David's kingdom. And David said, dumb. <laughs> and uh, he was killed. God warns us severely about those who might think to change government. We've looked at that verse in Proverbs chapter 4. Meddle not with them that are given to change. This is exalting authority. God doesn't want men going around thinking about some better form of government or making some statement like our Declaration of Independence and preamble to our Constitution that says whenever government doesn't give us all our cookies and cream, that it is our time to change government to one that will give us what we want. Go read it. That's all it says. It doesn't say anything more. We're tired of the government from England, so we're going to set up our own that will give us what we want and that we can control because government is of the people and by the people. Is it really? I believe that government is of God and by God. Let's not meddle with those that are given to change. If the king of England had been a king like Nebuchadnezzar, the Boston Tea Party would have been the last hurrah for the American colonies. He wouldn't have just sent 3,000 redcoats over here. He would have sent 3 million and obliterated this place. The Boston Tea Party, think about it. We're taught to almost reverence that event. And that was an act of defiant rebellion. Take your the word of God or nationalistic history books. Some of us have been involved in our own little Boston Tea Parties in the last 15 years, haven't we? God deliver us and bless us not to get involved in such things again. God warns us, this is exalting authority again, about the importance of women having long hair, hair to cover their heads because it's assigned to angels. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, angels who recognize authority want to see a symbol of power or sufficient of power on the head of women. That's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Even vows to Almighty God are under the control of fathers and husbands. In Numbers chapter 30, Michael the archangel went rail against the devil himself, but simply said the Lord rebuked thee when they were arguing about the very place of Moses, the burial of Moses, the body of Moses. We're told to pray for kings and for all their authority. In 1 Timothy 2, 2, it's an important part of the gospel for us to submit to magistrates in Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. How can we exalt authority properly? We can exalt it in this type of preaching and thinking this way. We can exalt it. We can exalt it in our homes by talking about authority this way. We can exalt authority by obeying it. We, that's how we can exalt authority. We can honor those in positions of authority. Whether it be a grandfather. A grandfather deserves some honor. We ought to go out of our way to honor grandparents. They ought to be grand to us. They're grander than parents. They've lived longer. They've got more hoary hairs, as the Bible would put it. They deserve our honor. We ought to lift them up. We ought to be forward in our submission to authority. I mean, forward in it. Looking for opportunities to show our submission. When there's a governor or the president has taken some strong position, let's go out of our way to honor him and tell him we're behind him, if at all possible, and let him know that we support him. You know, I've had several of you come to me and tell me in private things that you've done whether it be going to your master and telling him that you want to be his servant and to serve him well and use those archaic words, master and servant, let him know that you want to serve him, be forward in your submission. We've got to revive, at least for our congregation, the importance of authority. The exaltation of authority. Is authority valuable? You know, God's ordained it, and that's enough for us to keep it, but is it valuable? Is there anything you can look at in authority and see that it makes sense in addition to being God's Word? I hope you're able to see that it makes sense. Let me remind you that in every authority structure that God's ordained, it's always an autocratic ruler. All of you children, when you hear about the different forms of government, one form of government is superior to all others. And it's an autocratic form of government because it's the kind of government God ordained. It's not a democratic form of government. 
Democracy is a nice-sounding word for mob rule or anarchy. Democracy is every man doing that which is right in his own eyes, and when you add them all up, those that are doing the same thing that are right in their own eyes are the group that wins. An autocratic ruler ordained by God is the best form of government because that's what God always set up when God was in control. You know, all this emphasis on democracies and democracies, all democracy is a, t- is a taking away of authority. It's taking away of authority and putting it in the hands of the people. It doesn't belong in the hands of the people. It belongs in an office that God's ordained. You put authority in the hands of the people and you have the best this world is in today. I don't care what side of the curtain, the iron curtain or the bamboo curtain you're looking at, there's a mess. And I'll tell you, for the most part, there's been less of a mess when it comes to authority on the other side. Yeah, there's some economic messes that are going on in the side because God hasn't blessed them with any wisdom or prosperity when it comes to those matters. But there has been some authority. <coughs> when you think about the value of authority, you ever think about a city like New York? Now our brother John's going to go back home to New York City. He knows all about New York City. I've been there a few times. Some of you have been there a few times. All you have to do is be in a city like New York City and look up on both sides of you and see how far the stories go up and be out on that sidewalk at about 8 o'clock in the morning and at 12 o'clock at noon and see the rush of people and see how New Yorkers move. And you'll understand that these people could not get along together here without killing each other unless there was some authority keeping them from each other's throats. You take 10 million people and cram them together in a place the size of New York City, and it's amazing how it all works. You stop and think about it. How do groceries get to the grocery shelves without trucks being overturned in the streets? And how, how can taxi drivers, well, the way they... I think they're under authority. (laughs) Everything gets around. I mean, janitors clean the buildings at night. And they work 70 stories up. And someone had authority over the engineers so that they would engineer those buildings so that in a good wind, the salt and pepper shakers of those two towers wouldn't fall over. There's control at at every level of that city. How do you get... The uh, World Trade Center, a hundred stories high, and not have it crack in the middle or something. You engineers know how. You know all those stress tests and stress formulas they go through. But someone was in control of that thing, weren't they? It's been there now for a good 20 years or so. And it's been preserved because of authority. Now, if they had gone to the the lowest bidder, maybe, who, who didn't want to build under authority... That build, there could be four of them, both 50, all 50 stories tall right now, and some of the stories upside down because the tops would have tipped off. But you think about a big city like that, it's all functioning by authority. You fly down a road at 60 miles an hour, and somebody passes you coming the other way at 60 miles an hour, and you think 120 miles an hour combined speed, and there's 18 inches separating us, I'm glad there's some authority about yellow lines. It's amazing there aren't more accidents than there are. The authority. Michael and Rachel just flew to Fort Worth and back. Did you get there on time? Somebody was obeying authority. Did you get there? Somebody was obeying authority. There was some (coughs) grease monkey, call him what you will, relative to Frank Lorenzo, Somebody was obeying authority down a chain. I'm trying to exaggerate the chain to make the point. There was somebody obeying authority, putting together the screws and the bolts of that airplane that got you there. And if somebody decided along that path, well, who cares what he thinks? Let's just go ahead and do it my way. I mean, Greg, you'd have the same opportunity, and they'd drive that car out, and, and it'd go forward and reverse, and it'd go backward in first gear. I mean, if there were rules that governed men, we couldn't work if it wasn't for authority. Right. When you buy a one-quarter inch, and I can give all the other specifications if you teach me someday, bolt. And you know all the, you, you guys who know about all the bolts in this world, the different ways those threads can be turned and the different heights of those threads and so forth. When you order one, you get one. Because there's authority. There is, there's value in authority. 
so that these things are done properly. But you think about a big city like New York City, the things you don't like about it, some of you don't like New York City, the things you don't like are the result of there not being enough authority. Right. If you'll take what you don't like about the thought of visiting New York City, and some of you have shown great animosity when I've ever suggested the idea. <laughs> if you think about it, the things you don't like are the result of not enough authority. If there was more, you'd feel safer. If the New York City Police Department could do what they ought to do, it'd be a safer place. If the Bernard Getzes of this world could do a few more things, it'd be a safer place. But it's not because they aren't allowed to. But authority is important. You know, authority gives security. Men and women alike find security and peace in, under authority. Because under authority, the decisions the worries, the dilemmas, the doubts are taken away from you and put on a man that, if you're wise, is more capable of making them than you are. And God's called that man, and he enables that man, and I hope you remember all that I taught in the providence of God in setting up rulers, to make those decisions for you. Authority breeds security. Authority breeds security because someone is in charge that is more capable of these decisions than me. You talk to the children that don't know when the next meal is going to be, that don't know where the bounds are, where parents have not communicated bounds and limitations to children. They are the warped children. Our children, that the world would accuse, of, accuse us of having warped children or abused children, that know the limitations are the most balanced children. You talk to a wife, whose husband does not set the limitations and make the decisions and take the charge of that home, and you'll find a wife that is insecure and unhappy. I don't care what the National Organization of Women says about wanting to be partners. A woman is happiest in a marriage with a husband takes charge and rules because there is security and peace in it. Some of you men call me on the telephone and you complain about your bosses to me, and that's okay once in a while, you're wishing they were more authoritative. Sometimes you wish they would tell you more what to do rather than just letting you go because there isn't peace nor security in not knowing what you ought to do. You don't know, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? I don't know what he wants. If he would just tell you what to do and you can go give it your best, that's peace and security. You can, your mind can focus on exactly what you need to do rather than, what do I do to please this man? When there's definite authority taken and applied, peace and rest result from authority because the dilemmas and doubts of not knowing what to do are taken away. Authority is wise because, brethren, God has ordained offices, and the men who get those offices by the providence of God, and I hope and I appeal to your memories to remember all the verses that I raised on this point are wiser than you and I and are fit for those offices. Right. They are fit for those offices. Children should know and be taught that their parents are wiser than they are. Women should understand their husbands are wiser than they are. There is wisdom in authority. God's ordained it that way. Let one man make a decision who's got some wisdom rather than everybody voting. Listen, people think there's safety in letting everybody vote. There's safety in letting everybody vote. That's why the world thinks. If you one man, one vote. You know, whether they're black or whites in South Africa, one man, one vote. Listen, that nation was made by the minority. Where does it say in the Bible, one man, one vote? If they, if they would just withdraw all their military forces, eventually the minority would be the majority because they'd all kill each other. They're not, they, couldn't, they couldn't engineer a mine three feet down. There's wisdom and authority. God's ordained it that way. Whenever you start resorting to management by committee, when you start resorting to a nation that chooses its policies by its popular vote, all, you reduce yourself to the lowest level. And that is the average common man. You know
know, now in America, now listen, I, I just said something very nasty. In America, the average common man, when you take their collective opinion, is some great body of wisdom. <coughs> Anybody who's ever been an authority in a... See, we can't think about a nation because it's too big. You know why? Because none of us were made cut out for this. We can't think that big, so let's just boil it down. I have seven children. Let's say I was going to run my family the way the United States government runs the nation. Kids, I'm going to put you in this room with a pencil and a piece of paper, and I'd like you to put down the three things that you'd like me to change about the way this household is run. Do you know what kind of a mess I'd get? Well, first of all, Jonathan is just going to give me a bunch of scribbles on a page. But do you know, that's about 20% of our electorate. Will you all listen to me, please? That's about 20% of our electorate. They have the intelligence of Jonathan, wherever he is right now. I think he's out in the hall, drooling all over himself. But that is done in the name of a great form of government. Give me a man at the top that got there, even if he got there by crooked guile. At least it took guile. And at least he's got somebody there who's going to be able to make some intelligent decisions. And listen, when we look down through history and we see the men that God has in positions of power, they have often got there that way. You've got to think about that. God just didn't drop them down from heaven or bring them into this world by a virgin birth. They got there in all sorts of evil ways. But they rose to the top either by military prowess, by strength of personality, by inheritance, by beguiling their predecessor. But they got there. And that's a whole lot better than I can say for Jonathan right now. He can't even stay in the service. What would Rebecca write on it? Daniel. You know, he'd want a, a little blue bike this time. And listen, you think about our electorate. Who goes to the polls and pulls the knobs for our leaders? And don't laugh about what I said last Lord's Day. We very well in the next eight years could have Jesse Jackson to be our president. What will we do then? We will practice the same thing we practiced toward President Bush. It will be the hardest thing we've done yet, but we'll do it. We will do it. Right. If Jesse Jackson becomes the president of this nation by popular vote, it is what this nation wants and it is what this nation deserves, and we can't say against either of those two things. And we will honor him as our president. There's wisdom in it. There is wisdom when you lower it down. Listen. If Roadway was to submit to the Union fully and say, Union, we're, we're through fighting. Just go ahead and make your of our company. Would that be a good decision for the management of that company? I wonder if they'd make any money the next week. Somebody's got to make hard decisions, and God raises up managers to do that. God raises up masters to do that. God gives them ability, and I've been through all of that, but it's important for us to remember that. There's value in it. There sure is efficiency in it. What if we had had to go to the polls and vote whether we should be in the Middle East or not? You, you know, we could have done that to have really practiced democracy. Everybody go to the polls and vote on whether we should have been in the Middle East or not. Listen, you, you heard every conceivable idea on imaginable in the human mind as to why we shouldn't be there if that would ever have occurred. If you could have written in your reason why you were voting no, it would have been the most bizarre collection of hallucinations you've ever seen. One man can make that decision, and in our nation, I know somebody's reminded me that we do have separation of powers and we have three distinct parts to our government, but I like involving George Bush anyway because God always tries to find one man to put the power in one man. He did make the decision. He did. He had to live with it. And I thank God he was honored right in time for this series. He was honored by God in that decision being a wise one. But brethren, we live in a decline of authority. You know, the apostle wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in the last days perilous times have come, children will be disobedient to their parents. Now I want to remind you about something. If children are disobedient to their parents, there's a breakdown in authority, which means it's going to affect all the other levels of authority. The first relationship we experience in this world is when we open our eyes at about... 
I don't know. I better not say any age because some of you may be a little more lenient than I am. But you know, we, we, uh, we start screaming for our bottle or something, and all of a sudden, instead of a bottle, we get a great big fat hand over our face. And there we are screaming for our bottle, and this great big thing that just dwarfs our face comes down. It's fatty, thick, and it wraps itself around our face, and it gets over our nose and shuts off our mouths. And all of a sudden, whether it's three months old or 18 months old, we realize there is someone in this world that has the power of life and death over me. <laughs> the wisest advice I've ever given young parents is to use the hand over the mouths and nose of, noses of their children when they scream. You can teach them at an early age not to scream and teach submission to your word by them getting the connection. That voice has the power of life and death. You lock down on your child at 18 months and get your mouth right up in their ear and say their name and say no and all that. There is good recollection of an event like that. But brother, what if that breaks down? What if instead when we scream at 18 months we get sugar water jabbed into our mouths? I mean, just feast on this, kid. Sugar water. And then at 18 months, you know it's a bicycle. The kid won't be able to ride it for another year, but at 18 months, it depends on your child, I'm sorry. It's a bicycle, and they're just fed all these things, and there's no authority. And it's broken down so that that child thinks it can get its will from the moment it first exercises it all the way up. It then encounters school teachers, and it abuses them. Right? Does that sometimes? It abuses the neighbor. It abuses the little league coach. They abuse the little league coach. They go get a job. They don't want to work today. I don't want to make them that way. And they want they defy authority because it was broken down at the first level. That's where we have to play an important part by resurrecting that in our congregation. Right. The decline of authority starts at birth. And that's where we have got to revive it. You know, God gave men dominion over this earth. You know, we can't even handle authority over animals, can we? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God said to have dominion over everything I've created. And here we have lumberjacks. Now, what's a lumberjack the picture of in the American mind? Paul Bunyan. You know, a, a, griddle, a griddle so big, the other lumberjacks strapped big chunks of butter to their feet and would skate around it to get it ready for his pancakes. Oh, you Southerners. Do you even know who Paul Bunyan is? Bake <laughs> the blue ox and all that good stuff? It took a whole day for a bird to fly from one horn to the other horn and bake the blue ox? Look at all these blank faces, and I'm very nervous. <laughs> Babe, the blue ox, and Paul Bunyan. In our minds, we say lumberjack. It's this big, tough, strong man. What are the big, tough, strong men losing their jobs for in Oregon and Washington? The little spotted owls. Spotted owls. Spotted. They're spotted anyway. God said, have dominion over this world. We can't even have dominion over the brute beasts. Think of it. There's a decline of authority in our nation. How will we resurrect it? We have got to start right there at that age. Right. With them learning the authority of a father and the authority of a mother and putting them under good authority to have to submit to after that. Put them under a good boss. There's nothing wrong with a hard boss for some of our young people. There's nothing wrong with a hard job either. Every time some of the young men have gone out to work with Fred Baker at Roadway, I've enjoyed it, especially if it was summertime. And I knew they were going to have to go back into one of those aluminum trucks that's 150 degrees easily. It's like going into an oven to work all day long. You'll learn some submission to authority. When there's some guy walking around in a white shirt with a clipboard telling you you're not working fast enough when the sweat's running out of you, you can't drink it fast enough to keep it in there. That is authority, and it's good to learn that lesson. I love having my boys work with Red Baker. I love them coming home and saying, 
They asked for a drink and they couldn't get one until he said they could get one. You'd be as tough as you need to be. I love to hear that. You know what that is? That's learning authority. You know, this throw, throw the bottle in as soon as the baby cries. Fine, go ahead and do it your way. I'll do it my way. And there will be some authority taught. We cannot pamper these little babies like this world is trying to teach us. Or we'll have a generation without authority. They need to learn, they need to, learn to hear and understand and accept and submit to the word no. You know, there is such, such a little example of authority today. Norman Schwarzkopf is such an extreme exception. We would rejoice in God raising him up, but he is an extreme exception. Several of you men have asked me to tell the whole congregation about the glory of him submitting to the president. And the little flap that came up between the two of them, that that man can also show proper humility and submission, respect of authority, when there was a little disagreement blown up by the press about something he said, it, he had differed in opinion from the president. But he did a glorious job in taking care of that. So the president showed his graciousness in taking care of that. Where is the mighty father today? A mighty father known as a mighty father. We need more. We need more in this congregation. A mighty husband. A mighty master. And so forth. Everyone's afraid of authority. Afraid to exercise their authority. They're going to be called dictators. They're going to be called abusive husbands. Abusive fathers. Because they're afraid. Policemen are afraid. Especially now they're afraid. They've been afraid for the last 20 years. Ever since they had to take the streets in the face of rioters in Detroit 1968 without live ammunition in their guns. I remember that was an 11 year old boy in 1968 glued to that television as our city was burning and the National Guard had to take the street without live ammunition in their guns. Do you remember that? I could not understand that as an 11 year old. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar hearing about that? <laughs> rioters. Rioters looting and burning the city. And the National Guard stands there and sits there having their vehicles overturned. They can't use live ammunition. Kent State was glorious. Amen. Kent State was glorious. They were defying authority and destroying property that wasn't theirs. And they would not listen to rebuke. So what do you use next? Whatever force you have to enforce your authority. And that event and that picture is forever burned through the minds of the American people. is the most terrible thing that ever happened. Not to your minds, but to most minds, so that they can't use live ammunition. Anything like that is, oh, we can't have Kent State again. We need to resurrect authority in our lives. Principals are afraid to exercise authority in their schools like they'd like to. Football coaches are afraid. I mean, there's fear on every hand because of, of, a, of a decline of authority in our nation. There's little enforcement of authority. Corporal punishment is ridiculed. The Bible teaches it plainly. It's ridiculed in the home. We drive around town, we face those signs. Kids, you can't beat them. The Bible tells us we must. The superintendent of schools in Greenville County, in the last three weeks, banned all corporal punishment from schools because of the fear of resistance to the use of corporal punishment. There's no respect for authority. It's in a decline. It's going out of existence in our nation. How many of you remember a few years ago when Hustler Magazine did the parody of Jerry Falwell? I didn't say you were reading it, but you remember that event where Hustler Magazine did a parody of Jerry Falwell, and I would usually be blunt and in some vague way tell you what the parody was, but I won't even do that this evening. It was so gross that it ought not to be even alluded to for the more curious to understand. But what, how can a magazine like that get You talk, call that freedom of speech? It was a gross, gross parody of, the Jerry, of Jerry Falwell. I read in the Word of God that when some children, children, you say innocent children, little children, all they said was, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head, to Elisha. Elisha cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she bears came out of the wood and tore 42 of them. That's right. And when a magazine like that can get away with the parodies on authority and, the, and parodies on the ministry, something is happening in our nation. We, you know it. But when we know something like that, it means we've got to be more on our guard than ever. The reason for the emphasis and the repetition in sermons like this is because there is an enemy 
trying to pervert your mind, and I'm supposed to make war against it. Right. There's the emphasis of God's word, which would justify a good deal of preaching on this subject. But when we live in a nation where, there is being, where such efforts are being made to destroy this, I have to make double the effort. I have to make it for myself. We find our first relationship tainted, and after that's tainted, why fear anyone? The rejection of authority. Look at Jude, verse 8. Jude, verse 8. Now, we read 2 Peter chapter 2 last Sunday. We'll read Jude 8 through 10 this Sunday. Basically the same sense, just different words. Jude, verse 8. Having just described Sodom and Gomorrah, Jude writes, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. And I'll make my point again. The, the greatest example of despising authority are sodomites. And the text says so. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. And defiling the flesh here is sodomy. Despise dominion, speak evil of dignities. The most irreverent people in our nation are the Sodomites. But I want to point out something beyond that. I want to point out the connection of the two. They're both unnatural. They're both unreasonable. They're both against the things that God teaches by nature to men. And he goes on to explain that in verse 10. Let's get verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Michael the archangel, we read about him last Sunday. Remember, he fought with the prince of Persia, the demonic spirits that were motivating the kings of Persia and controlling the Persian government and trying to control the Persian government. Michael had to make war with them before he made it to Daniel. Remember, we looked at that in Daniel chapter 10. Well, that great angel, Michael the archangel, that great angel does not bring a railing accusation against the devil. He does not call him names. He does not ridicule the devil. He simply says, the Lord rebuke thee. But why does the apostle stick that in there? To give us a sober example of a very great being not saying anything against the devil. Second Peter says that great, those great beings don't even say anything against human rulers. Right. Verse 10, but these, this is back to the ones in verse 8, these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally is brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. They corrupt themselves in sodomy and they corrupt themselves in breakdown of government. This is a warning of what is happening in our nation. There is a rejection and a despising of government. In a workplace where a husband is described either by a wife or by himself about his opinions on marriage, that marriage is for the man, and the man ought to rule over his woman, there is ridicule and hatred of such a person. I know. I've been there before lots of times. Some of you have been there. There's hatred for such a person. There is an animosity burning in the hearts of the people of this nation to destroy men who want to be husbands. You talk about child training the way we talk about it inside these four walls out in public places, and you will, you will generate a hatred by the people that hear you about what you do, they would take your children away from you if they had the opportunity. They hate what we stand for. They hate the authority of God's Word and the place that, it, that God's Word exalts it to. There is a rejection of it. They despise dominion. It's not that they just don't like it, but they despise it. A man like Frank Lorenzo comes along who doesn't believe in union contracts and who believes he can fire employees and lower their wages to make an airline profitable, and he is ridiculed and despised by the American media. When he's an American hero, he ought to be. He tried to be a hero for Eastern Airlines. He was for Continental until bankruptcy court for Eastern stuck its long fingers into the Continental Airlines, and now he's gone from both. We have a society that has an appetite for anything contrary to authority, that despise dominion, that want to break down of everything we stand for. And we've got to be on guard against it. 
You you go into the average Baptist church and look and look for their rules of decorum, their their creed, their confession of faith, and they will say that the church government ought to be congregational rule. Those words to anybody who know who knows anything about Baptist history whatsoever are basic tenets of Baptist philosophy, congregational rule. Where is that found in the Word of God? Congregational rule is national rule. Congregational rule is children ruling. Congregational rule is servants telling the master what to do. Congregational rule of God never said it. Everywhere you turn in our nation, there is an, an attempt to overthrow authority. I made a few remarks last Sunday evening about the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department. For those of you who who took my comments certain ways, I'll clarify some points. For some of you who took my comments another way, I'll correct my points. I did not mean, and if you were to see my outline, I did not mean that police officers are justified in breaking the law. And in our nation, there is a thing called due process. And due process means that you don't take a man who's not resisting arrest and while he's on the ground, handcuffed, beat him and kick him. There is a thing called due process of law. Those policemen are under authority as well as the man who was speeding and, and who was known as a drunkard and had a criminal record. That, did, that was in my outline. Nothing's been changed in my outline. While we should not justify wickedness in rulers, and we can't justify wickedness in rulers, when it occurs like that, it's got to be condemned. We should condemn them fearfully. The point I wanted to make was the point of exalting authority. What makes me sick is the fact that this nation gets a little tidbit like that that's about this big and makes it this big and blows it up all through our papers and entertains the minds of Americans who are looking for an excuse to despise dominion. The policemen were wrong. So was the black drunkard. The policemen weren't any wronger than the black drunkard. They were both wrong. Blow up pictures of the black drunkard. Publish his pictures. My point was the emphasis of the American people and our media. Our media is out to sensationalize things for the appetite of men. And the appetite is to despise dominion. And whenever they can get something on someone in authority, they want to use it. And to think of that poor Mr. Gates having to step down and have his character smeared because of our media over that event is terrible. Thanks be to God, we've been one week since I made those remarks and he's been reinstated. The black mayor of Los Angeles has been overthrown and he has been reinstated by the city council. The police commission, the black mayor together, told him to step down and the city council said step up and get back into his job, and he's back in his job unless things have changed again. But he's back in his job, and I thank God for that. Why should that man be thrown out of his job when he had nothing to do with that? Yes, he's ultimately responsible. Why don't they practice that level of punishment at all forms of authority in our nation? One little infraction, way down the line, and somebody loses their job? Listen, you can't even fire a person today from a company unless you've got a file an inch thick on it. Right. <coughs> we cannot justify brutality on the part of our police because we have due process. If we didn't have due process, we could justify a little bit of it, and it wouldn't hurt our nation to have some of it. Now, we may differ in opinion there. I think it'd be good to have our, if our policemen had a little bit of leeway. You know, when I, the Old West was pretty good when James Butler Hickok were coming to Dodge City. He'd simply be given a nice sum of money, maybe a hundred dollars on, you know, five gold pieces back then. It was quite a bit of money. And they'd say, clean up town. He was the law. And he made decisions, and listen, he might be one man in the city, but he didn't need 14 sheriffs and 23 constables. All he needed was two ivory-handled six-guns and the courage to use them. And he'd exercise it wisely. The city council hired him. The city council paid him. And the city council told him what they wanted that city rid of. And two months later, he'd ride out of town. And the evil elements in that town were in two places. <laughs> Neighboring cities or the local cemetery. 
They did the job. And a little bit more of that would show more like what the Bible describes in the way of authority. Yes. I want, I want you to think, though, about the perversity of our nation. And with this, I'll close. Our nation is perverse. Has there been a big deal made in the last four weeks about the LAPD? Over and over and over again. There are several categories of movies that Hollywood is producing for our nation. There's one category that's called the very violent. They started out in the 1960s with the Dirty Harry series, Harry Callahan. Would you please think with me for just a minute about the perversity of American minds? What do Americans love to see when they go watch Harry Callahan? They love to see Harry Callahan stop a black drunkard who was speeding through town, pull him out of his car, lay him on the sidewalk, and kick the snot out of him. They love that. Do you know why they love that? Because they are sick of a lack of authority. And do you know what happens in every theater when that happens? There is a cheer that goes up. Dirty Harry's too old to do that. Now he'd probably have a coronary. Or Ben Eastwood is getting out in years. So they come up with more, don't they? Charles Bronson. The Death Wish. The Death Wish series was all about a man living in New York City who became a personal vigilante after his wife was killed. Who went around with a gun, finding criminals and taking care of them themselves, and it sold and made millions. Because people wish there were some men that would stand up and take some authority, but when it happens in reality, where there is actual authority involved, they despise it. it have you, think about that. Right now, there's a couple of heroes coming on the American scene. John Van Damme and Steven Seagal. I don't recommend that you go feast yourself on their movies, but they're sold on two things. Steven Seagal is always a policeman, and that policeman always goes around with the law in his own hands to a certain degree. Every time he needs information from uh, one of his contacts, he simply pushes them up in a corner, takes his fingers, breaks them off, and gets the information he needs. And they, they, they love it. They eat it up. Because there's scum out there that isn't being treated with, and they want to see it treated. But when policemen try anything like that, they take it and blow it out of proportion. Now, would you think about the perversity of the American mind? Just... We're a sick nation. We're a sick nation. Everyone knows that our policemen need more authority. Everyone knows that. And I'm not, again, I'm still not justifying what they did. I just want you to think through the need for authority to have some teeth to enforce what they do. And while we have due process of law, where our policemen are not judge, jury, executioner, and everything like that, and they are, they are held within bounds, they're under authority. Their authority says... Arrest the man, bring him in, and we'll charge him. So they were wrong. But the exploitation of that to undermine our confidence in policemen, to undermine, can you imagine being chief of police in that city now? After having to step down and step back up for an event like that, he's been smeared. Brethren, the Bible exalts this thing called authority and sets it up on high. Let's call our policemen policemen. Let's exalt them to our children. Daniel, the other day, some policeman went screaming by in his police car, siren going, lights. Oh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, he said. Why be afraid of a policeman? Right. Why be afraid of a policeman? They're out there to protect us. We ought to teach right. them confidence in our policemen. They, course, they got a 15-minute lecture or so after that, but we ought to teach confidence in those men, and appreciation for them. I remember working at uh, Michigan National Bank, one good thing they did, any policeman and firemen in the city of Detroit could have, as a courtesy, suppose that was always to help in case robbery, but there were free checking accounts for all the policemen and the firemen, and we ought to honor our policemen. Right. They don't get paid very much. And no, not all of them are the most brilliant men in the world, but they're out there trying to protect us. And yes, there's some corruption, and you can't really blame them. You can't, you can't really blame them for giving up in some ways on their job because of the lack of teeth in our judicial system that will defend them. 
and support them when they bring someone in off the streets. But all of that aside, all of that aside, we live in a day where everything that I'm teaching goes contrary to what the world is teaching out there. First of all, God has an emphasis. And that emphasis ought to be taught. And we ought to know it. But when the world's making an emphasis in the other direction, we better really take heed to ourselves. And the first place to start is with all these little children who are sitting here in this congregation. Right. They need to be taught to respect and honor and esteem and love and appreciate proper authority. And let's teach them that and ourselves that where we need it. I mean, God bless this congregation to understand it and to submit to it. And I appreciate all the remarks that I've heard in private about those of you that are trying to do things, those of you who have thought back about your relationship with your parents and grandparents and others and wanting to rectify situations with them to show them honor, that encourages my heart. And I know that God Almighty sees that and sees that as fruit of righteousness in the Greenville Church. And I hope there'll be a lot more to see. O oh Lord, by these things you have taught us in the gospel of Christ that these are wholesome words, that these are good things and good words. This is your ordinance. And it's by doing these things that we show the grace of God in our hearts and that we do things that are thankworthy before thee. Heavenly Father, may there be mighty fathers in this congregation.